How many of you instinctually just wanted to stand up as that music uh, came on the screen this morning? You know, to call George Friedrich Handel one of history's greatest composers uh, is an extraordinary understatement. Beethoven once said of him, to him I bow the knee. Handel was a prolific uh, composer. He wrote uh, 49 different operas, 23 different oratories, 120 cantatas. He was brilliant. He was a master musician. But at the age of 56, Handel was weary, he was worn out, he was tired, he was past his composing prime. He wasn't sure he could keep on keeping on. He had health issues. He was massively in debt. In fact, he had had a stroke which left uh, his right arm partially paralyzed. And for a composer and a musician, this was a big deal. And he just didn't know how he was going to keep going. But Handel had a wonderful Christian friend who encouraged him to keep going, to give it another shot. And so on August 21st, 1741, Handel went into his composing studio, and for 21 days he didn't leave his house, he barely left his composing studio. And 21 days later, three weeks later, he walked out with one of Western history's most performed pieces ever, the Messiah. An incredible composition, 260 pages. And at the end of the Messiah, he wrote the initials S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, Latin for to God alone be the glory. Handel knew that uh, this was for the glory of God and because uh, that God helped him to, pers to persist and keep going when he did not feel like he would could keep going. And you probably know that the Alleluia Chorus is the grand finale of this uh, incredible masterpiece. And it's, if you've ever heard it live with a full orchestra and professional musicians, I guarantee you it will send chills down your spine. But it doesn't start out with the Alleluia Chorus. It starts out in the Old Testament with lots and lots of prophecy, movement after movement after movement of prophetic voices speaking to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think one of the reasons why uh, the Alleluia Chorus just kind of pumps us up and gets us so excited is, let's be honest, we've been sitting in our chairs listening to music for three hours, and the music is building and growing, and sometimes it's big and full, and other times it's quiet and pensive, and it's just this looking forward, looking forward, waiting for the Messiah to come. And so finally when the Messiah comes and he lives and he teaches and he dies and he comes back to life, then the Alleluia Chorus starts singing and going and it's like, finally, we can go home. The Messiah has arrived. Well, I want to say welcome uh, to Faith Lutheran Church this weekend. Uh, it's so good to have each and every one of you here. 
And this, during the season of Advent, uh, we're going to be spending some time in the Old Testament, in the, in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And the Messiah begins with uh, many of these themes from the Old Testament. And did you know that there are more than 300 prophetic verses relating to the life, death, uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that point ahead to say he's coming, he's coming. But the Old Testament is full of these uh, invitations to wait and to wonder and to watch and to look and to see. And the book we're going to look at, if you've got your Bibles, is from the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is um, about halfway through the Old Testament. So if you just open your Bibles uh, halfway through, there's a good chance you're going to get to right to Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is part of a collection of books um, that are both poetic, um, but more importantly, prophetic. And uh, that, that the genre of the book of, uh, of Isaiah is prophecy. It's not history like we oftentimes think of many of the things that are going on in the Old Testament, but the writers of Isaiah are really uh, concerned and paying attention uh, to uh, prophecy, which is about forth-telling, which means telling the truth, saying it like it is, um, but also about foretelling, speaking about things that are going to happen in the future. And Isaiah is part of this collection of uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They are known as the major prophets. And then there are also 12 minor prophets. And it's not that they were small or unimportant. It's just that their recordings in the Old Testament scripture are just shorter. Uh, the book of Isaiah is quite a lengthy book uh, because Isaiah had a lot to say. And he wrote down a lot uh, over the course of his life. Isaiah lived about uh, 700 years uh, before Jesus came on the scene. And he was speaking uh, to a group of people, uh, God's people, the Israelites. And they were, there's just no other way to say it, they were in a bad way. They were struggling. 300 years uh, before Isaiah, King David was on the throne. It was the golden era for God's people, and uh, everything was really, really good. And uh, then after David came Solomon, and after Solomon, things went really downhill uh, for uh, God's people, the Israelites. And, and it went downhill, uh, Scripture tells us, uh, simply because people turned their backs on God. They started disobeying God more and more, and sin crept into their lives. And the more they sinned and the more they disobeyed, uh, the, the God's people, the Israelites, went downhill and downhill. So here's Isaiah coming along 300 years later. And things are a mess, uh, mostly because the Israelites have made it a mess uh, because of their disobedience and saying, God, we don't need you. We're going to just do this ourselves. And uh, so they were, they were crumbling from within. Um, because of their immorality and uh, all the ways that they were sinning and turning their backs on God. And, and things were really falling apart from within. But they weren't just falling apart from within. They were also falling apart externally. 
Because at this time, the Assyrian army was coming down from the north, and they were about to invade Jerusalem. They were about to invade the, the nation of Israel. And so if you were living in Jerusalem in Isaiah's time, you could look out your windows all around uh, the walls of, of the city of Jerusalem, and you would see tens of thousands of Assyrian soldiers getting ready to attack. So it was really bad inside the gates of Jerusalem, and guess what? They were about ready to be invaded by a foreign army. I mean, there's no way to cut it. It was a really dark and horrible time for God's people. And so God sent this prophet, Isaiah, to come and speak truth uh, into their lives, but also uh, to uh, speak and, and encourage them and remind them um, that better days were coming. And a little bit ago, uh, someone from the congregation uh, read this Isaiah text, and, and what I want to do is go back through this text, uh, line by line, verse by verse, and, and I count, personally, uh, ten different prophecies, uh, ten different uh, uh, words of, hey, better days are coming, and, and really pointing most specifically prophecies speaking to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, again, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah 9, uh, beginning with verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Now the first prophecy that, that this text speaks of is the people in darkness. And you probably know uh, that Jesus spent most of his life not in Jerusalem, where the people of the light were, but in darkness. Jesus spent most of his time about a hundred miles north of Jerusalem in a region called Galilee. Of course, Jesus was raised in a community called Nazareth, and it was far away uh, from Jerusalem. And it was among people uh, who were not uh, necessarily um, God followers, uh, followers of Yahweh. They were not Israelites, God's people. They were a mishmash of a whole bunch of different things. And in the Jewish mind to who Isaiah is writing, that was the land of darkness. And so for the first 30 years, there was Jesus doing what Jesus did. He was this little glimmer of light. And then he stepped onto the scene, onto the stage of ministry. And for three years, Jesus traveled around, mostly around the region, again, of Galilee, doing ministry. In his three years of public ministry, uh, Jesus probably only went to Jerusalem three, maybe four times. Uh, to, Of course, for Passover. Most of the time, Jesus was in the land of darkness. And so it says, he came, uh, he was in the land of the darkness. The people walking in the darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So in this one verse, four times Isaiah is talking about joy. 
So not only is um, this, this Messiah, this rescuer, uh, coming from the land of darkness, but he is going to come and bring you great joy. And as we look at the Gospels, that's what Jesus did everywhere he went. People were filled with joy. And I think this text is pointing towards Jesus uh, of Nazareth. For as in the day of Midian's defeat... Uh, you have sheltered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across your shoulders, the rod of the, uh, their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So there's this great battle that's going to go on. And you hear the words of freedom, that, that freedom is coming. Uh, this, this idea that the battle's going to be won and you will experience freedom. It's going to be good. And I think about the day that uh, there was Jesus, in, uh, 700 years later, shows up, rolls out a scroll, and he talks about how freedom, and that he's come to declare freedom among God's enslaved people. And, and later, of course, it was among the Romans. Uh, in this day, it was among the Assyrian invaders. But, but uh, freedom is coming. It's just around the corner. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting, Prince of Peace. A child is coming, a child is going to be born, and he's going to be a king, and it's going to be really, really good. So let's just break this down and think about how these words uh, are, are preparing the people uh, to see Jesus as he's coming. Um, wonderful counselor. So this king is going to have divine wisdom. Sounds like Jesus. As he, as, I, as he told parables, and, and the people are like, where did he get so smart? Mighty God. This king would be God. He wouldn't just be a man on the throne, but he would actually be God. And over and over throughout the Gospels, especially of John, Jesus says, my father and I are one, I am God. And it made the people so irritated and frustrated and angry and confused. But 700 years earlier, Isaiah said, the new king coming, it's going to be God on the throne. Mighty God, everlasting Father. So our divine king, it's not just going to be God, and he's not going to just sit on the throne for a spell of time, but he's going to be everlasting, eternal, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Prince of Peace. Our King who's coming will bring peace. And over and over as we hear about the testimonies of people who have met the living Christ, there's always this idea of, man, I, when I met Jesus for the first time, I got this incredible peace. And we, of course, call this the peace that passes all understanding. Pointing to Jesus. Of the greatness of his government and the peace will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom. So the eighth prophecy I see in here is how Isaiah is pointing this linkage, this connection uh, between the Messiah and David uh, on the throne. And, And fast forward to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, begins with this genealogy tying together all the people from Adam all the way uh, to Jesus the Messiah. And David is in there. And so there's this direct connection, this direct link, this genealogy uh, between David. And so this this Messiah who is coming, he's going to be directly connected in the line of David. Let's see. Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. Establishing and upholding it with justice. This king, this Messiah, this one who's going to come rescue us, he's going to bring justice. He's going to make things right. All the things that are wrong, he's going to make them right. I think that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Lifting the poor, helping the oppressed, those who are sick and wounded. He bandaged them up and healed them. Jesus brought righteousness. He brought justice uh, to their lives. And then the last one. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So who's going to accomplish Uh, this prophecy? Is it going to be people? Is it going to be God's nation? Uh, Is it going to be, I I don't know, but it tells us right here very clearly, it's going to be God. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God's going to do this. It's not going to be through the work of any human hands or efforts of any human being. It's going to come from God. And this, of course, is the central story of the Christmas narrative. That God left earth and came. It's out of his zeal. I love that word because there's this passion behind it. For God so loved the world that he came into the world to rescue his people. This zeal came from heaven. This love came from heaven. This passion came from heaven to come to you. That's how much he loves you. All this is going to be accomplished. And we see this over and over and over through the life, death, and resurrection. This love, this passion, this this zeal that Jesus has for other people. And and people's minds are just absolutely blown uh, by how much um, God, uh, uh, how much Jesus loved them uh, through, through his ministry. 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth, these words were prophesied. And we can't forget that these prophecies did not come true. They didn't come to fruition in a few weeks, in a few months, or even a few years. God's people have gotten pretty used to waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. 
And as I think about the early church, and uh, as the early church was, was uh, rising up and, and things were going pretty well, there was still a lot of persecution, a lot of suffering, a lot of struggle, a lot of hardship. And Jesus said, hey, it's going to be all good. Uh, and, and the people thought, it's going to be all good. But they continued to wait and wait and wait for things to get better. In fact, for the first 300 years of the church, uh, the church experienced lots of persecution and struggle. And people continued to wait and wait and wait for Jesus to make things all good, completely good uh, in the world uh, and in their lives. And, and I think about one of the early writers, uh, early followers of Jesus in the church, but also, of course, was uh, one of the early writers, the Apostle Paul. And Paul uh, was an incredible leader. He was a, an incredible uh, servant and proclaimer of, of Jesus Christ, of the good news. But Paul uh, struggled with incredible hardship. In fact, I want to read a passage of scripture to you uh, from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. This is what Paul writes uh, to the church in Corinth about some of his struggles. I've worked much harder, been jailed more often, beaten up more times than I can count, and at death's door time after time. I've been flogged five times with the Jews' 39 lashes, beaten by the Romans' rods three times, pummeled with rocks, I've been shipwrecked three times and immersed in the open sea for a night and for a day. And in hard traveling year in, year out, I've had to ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by the desert sun and sea and storm. And I've been betrayed by those I thought were my brothers." I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, missed many meals, blasted by the cold and naked by the weather. And that's not even the half of it when you throw in the daily pressures and anxieties of all the churches. Paul was stressed out by all the weight that he carried. And it wasn't just the stress, it was all the challenges and the struggles. And, and as, as, as I read these things, and I hope as you heard me read these things, you're like, all right, life is hard. Um, I'm not the only one struggling in this world. And in the midst of all that, Paul had a good friend, Barnabas, who encouraged him to keep on keeping on, to, to press ahead. And, and Paul surrounded himself with other Christians, followers of Jesus in the church, to really encourage uh, one another. And Paul is a great encourager himself, and uh, he wrote many letters to uh, the churches uh, throughout the Mediterranean world. People who are struggling, people who are suffering, people who are waiting for things to get better. In fact, Paul wrote uh, a letter to the church in Galatia, and this is what he said to God's people who were weary and worn out. He said, we must never get tired of doing what's good and right. For the right time will reap a harvest and blessing if we don't give up or quit. 
Paul says, don't give up church. Don't quit church. I know you're tired. I know you're worn out. I know you're weary. And I know you just keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And by the way, I know, I know you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Paul just continued to encourage over and over and over. You know, the Bible speaks of this encouragement as the ministry of exhortation. And I think oftentimes uh, the ministry of exhortation um, is undervalued in the life of the church. And, and exhortation uh, simply means to encourage, to help, uh, to speak words of affirmation, to help a person get up when they fall down, to, to help dust them off, uh, to hold their hand and walk alongside them, to look them in the eye and say, you can do it. You can keep on keeping on uh, through the grace and through the power of God and the Holy Spirit. And I am going to walk this journey with you. A couple of years ago, um, I actually uh, went through uh, a, a difficult time in my life. And uh, I met, met a guy by the name of Mark. Uh, this is my friend Mark. And Mark is a pastor uh, at Living Waters in Peoria. And uh, I was, had just gone through a really difficult time in the life of the church I was at. And uh, I kind of had it. I was uh, starting to interview uh, at churches uh, around the country. I had uh, felt badly burned uh, by the leadership of the church uh, I was a part of. Uh, I was sick and tired of ministry. I was worn out. And I, I felt betrayed. Uh, and uh, I, just, I, I just was done. I was just really done. And so I was interviewing at churches around the, uh, the United States, um, but I was also considering just getting out of ministry altogether. And so when I met Mark, uh, we usually met in uh, Morton uh, because it's halfway between Bloomington and Peoria. Uh, I would just share with him, Mark, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm worn out. Uh, and I would share with him about the churches I was interviewing with. And, and Mark would look me in the eye and he would encourage me. And, uh, and he would always pray with me. And uh, he was just a, a dear brother in Christ who just uh, walked the journey with me. And this went on week after week, uh, month after month. And, and uh, I, I just wasn't sure, you know, where this was going to go. And, and uh, the days were really, really long. And I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And so one day, Mark and I, uh, we met at Cracker Barrel in, uh, in Morton. That's how well I remember it. And I remember sitting down at the table with Mark, and I said, Mark, um, there's a group of people in Bloomington uh, that have asked me to pray about uh, starting a church, uh, a new church. And, and I barely got the words off, uh, uh, came off my lips, and Mark says, I think you need to consider that. And I'm like, oh, no. Mark, I don't know anything about church planting. In fact, I've only been a part of big churches before. I don't know how to do it. I would have no idea uh, even where to start. And Mark just, he, he continued to listen to me. And he said, Brian, I think you need to pray about that. I think you really need to consider that. And I got to tell you, here we are uh, two and a half years later. I can say with a great deal of confidence that I've been the pastor of Faith Lutheran Church for the last uh, two and a half years, in large part because of the ministry of exhortation, 
a man who just looked me in the eye, listened to me, walked the journey with me, prayed with me. And he said, you can do it. He spoke those words of affirmation and confidence and said, through the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, Brian, I think you can do it. Well, this morning, I'm mailing in the sermon, um, not because I don't want to be with you, um, but because, in fact, uh, Tim Moore and I are in Atlanta, Georgia. And the story is simply this. About 10 months ago, I got a phone call uh, from a friend of mine by the name of Jack. And Jack said, Brian, I've been a church, part of a church for 15 years, and I'm really struggling. I, I just can't even go to worship anymore. In fact, uh, my wife and I have not been going to church for many, many months. And I listened to Jack, and I encouraged Jack, and I prayed with Jack. And I said, Jack, I just want to encourage you. You need to stay connected uh, to God, and you need to stay connected with another group of believers. And, and we prayed, and I just said, Jack, you can do it. Keep going. Well, a couple weeks later, um, then I got an email uh, from another friend of mine, Bill, and he said, Brian, uh, same thing, similar story. I'm, I'm struggling. I've been without a church uh, for many, many months now. I, I just don't know what to do. And so I spent time with Bill um, back and forth emailing and, and just trying to encourage and to pour into him. A couple weeks later, I get a text uh, from another friend, Jeff. Jeff wrote and said, hey, Brian, I haven't been to church in three years. I'm over it. I've had it. The church has disappointed me so much. The leadership and, and so many other people, it's, it's just gotten nasty and political. And he said, I'm over it. And so I just, there I am texting my friend Jeff uh, back and forth and encouraging him and just, just letting him pour out, you know, his, his grievance, his frustration. And uh, I, I just, I'm like, Jeff, you need to stay connected to God. You need to stay connected to God and you need to stay connected to God's people. And I know it's hard, but I want to encourage you to keep on keeping on. And somehow this group of uh, spiritual nomads have a, a wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, but really just disillusioned with the church. Um, they, they, have, they, they came together and, they, and about a few months ago, they, they called um, the, the Faith Lutheran Church Council. And so there we were on a Tuesday night at one of our regular monthly council meetings on the phone. And we passed around the phone to all the council people uh, of your church and every one of uh, your council people uh, just listened and said, this is my story. And then just said, you can do it. And they encouraged this group of people. And so here Tim and I are, Sunday morning in Atlanta, Georgia, because of the ministry of exhortation. The ministry that you have been a part of over the past 10 months of just walking this journey together, looking each other in the eye and saying, you can do it. Keep on keeping on. Advent, of course, is a season of new beginnings. 
Advent is a season of waiting and, and looking ahead, waiting for Jesus Christ, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ into this world. But Advent also reminds us that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again to bring healing. He's coming again to bring restoration. He's coming again uh, to, to bind up your wounds and to give you that peace. Jesus is coming. And I don't know if it's going to be this afternoon. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. I don't know if it's going to be next year. But in the meantime, we live, we live every single day in the season of waiting. And much of life is about waiting and walking the journey uh, together as Christ followers and encouraging one another along the way. So this morning I just have two questions for you, two challenges that I want to lift up on this Advent 1. Who are you surrounding yourself with to encourage you? Who are those Christ followers, those people who have a strong relationship, a strong connection with the living God, and how are they speaking into your life and looking you in the eye and, and listening to what's going on and praying with you and, and loving you and just caring for you? And in those moments where you're just like, I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired and you're not even sure if you can go on, those people that say, I'm here for you, and I want to walk this journey with you. All of us need those people in our lives, those people that we can pour out our hearts and they just say, you can do it. Keep going and I want to keep walking this journey with you. So who are those people who are pouring into you? And then the second question is who are you pouring into? Who are those people around you that are still living in Galilee, living in the darkness, who need to see the light. See, I think many of you underestimate how you reflect the light of Jesus Christ to others. But that's exactly, when we are Christ followers, that's exactly what we do. We're not the light. We are the reflection of the light of Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you, who are those people that are walking in darkness that need to see the light of Christ? Because we live in a world that is full of hurt, a world that is stressed out by financial problems, relationship problems, employment issues. And you need to find them. You need to find them. They're probably not just going to come knocking on your door. Now they might. But I found most of the time we got to go looking for those people. Those people who are in the darkness. I'll be honest with you. That's not an easy place to go. It's an uncomfortable place for me to go. I'd rather just stay in the light and be around Jesus followers all day long. Because... I like hanging out with you guys. But Jesus has called us to go into those places of darkness, to reflect his light, to offer encouragement, to help people experience healing, to help people have hope. 
And so during this Advent season, and I think about uh, Handel's Messiah, and all the long journey that this composition goes through, three hours until you get to the Alleluia Chorus. I think the Alleluia Chorus is coming, but not yet. Because right now, we're in a season of waiting. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you um, that you are a God who comes and meets your people at just the right time. Lord, we know that our time is not your time and your time is not our time. And while we know that, uh, it still frustrates us and we struggle with it, God, because we want it and we want it now. And God, there's so much hurting, there's so much struggle, there's so much pain uh, in our own lives. And so we're impatient. Lord, help us to be the church that you have called us to be. People who practice exhortation, encouragement, watching and waiting together. Lord, bless the good and faithful people of St. Martin Lutheran Church in Atlanta this morning. Bless the good and faithful people of Faith Lutheran Church in Bloomington, Illinois this morning. We thank you and praise you, God, and we look forward to the day where together we will sing the Alleluia Chorus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.